The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, good morning, Ecclesia on the west side. How's everybody feeling today? Feeling refreshed and rested? Maybe not, yeah. Um, Well, my name is Wayne Brown. I'm the campus pastor here, and I've been here since the middle of October, and I am absolutely loving the ride so far. You are a beautiful community of people, such amazing stories, so many great things happening. So I'm honored to get to be here, and uh, we are entering into a season of Lent, and if you missed it last week, Chris really kind of helped set the table for us. Uh, You can go back and check the podcast. He gave some really helpful uh, practices to engage, to really get the most out of this season of Lent. And I've been picking up some of those and it's been a good practice. So make sure you check that out. Also, our team released a Lenten podcast, the first of three episodes last Wednesday. uh, And it's a gift. We're gonna walk through practices of silence, solitude and stillness. And they are really helpful, a lot of different voices. So go back and check the podcast if you missed it. You'll, you'll be glad you did. It's been a gift. Uh, but we're going to step into a different kind of season and a conversation. We've been talking about love as a community for the past several months. And we're going to go in a different direction. Um, and I think the best way to start off is to really go into a moment that's kind of painful for me. So I will never forget this one particular Tuesday in the, in the middle of September of 2008. And I was, on this Tuesday, I was in a, in a room, I was standing in front of a full room of people and I said something in front of everybody. And as soon as the words got out of my mouth, I just knew this is going to be bad. You ever been there where you said something and you like everything in you just wish, can I just get those back, please? Can, can I hit erase? Can I, can we rewind? Can we try this over? And so I just closed my eyes for a few seconds and I just thought if I stand here with my eyes closed long enough, will it be awkward enough that everybody will just leave or everybody will just like forget what happened? And I could feel my neck starting to get hot and I could tell my face was starting to flush, my cheeks were getting red. And I had never been so embarrassed in front of a crowd of people before in my life. Now, in order to help you understand just how tragic this was for me, I need to give you a little context. So in June of 2008, I had just graduated from uh, from my master's degree and I had two master's degrees. So I was feeling very accomplished with myself, very proud of what I had done. I finished up a program in Los Angeles. My wife uh, got a job here in Houston, Texas. So we had made the move to Houston, Texas. And so I went about, well, now it's time for me to go get a job. So I started going on job interviews and telling people, I have two master's degrees and I'm like, let me tell you why I'm awesome. Let me tell you what I can give to your company and all this kind of stuff. And job interview after job interview after job interview. Sometimes you get to the third round, but every single one eventually called me back and said, we've decided to go with someone else. And so in this space, I was feeling like a complete and utter failure. And finally, I got a call from the administrator of a local school. It was a private school. And he offered me a job to come teach high school math and to do a little bit of coaching on the side. And 
I went ahead and took it, but I was still feeling like a failure because the reality was this was my best friend's dad was the administrator of the school, (laughs) right? So I felt like I'm the guy who has two master's degrees and I can't get a job. I can only get a job if my best friend dad calls me and offers me a job, right? That's the headspace I'm going into with this, right? And I had never taught in any kind of school format before. Um, I had enough undergraduate math credits to where I could do that and work on the teaching certification during the year uh, to be certified. So it was, everything was good. Uh, but I was in over my head. I had no idea what I was doing. And I look young, I know that, but imagine what I looked like 10 years ago. Right? Imagine me walking the halls in between third period and every coach, every teacher saying, hey, where are you supposed to be, right? (laughs) Where's your hall pass? And no, I work here, you know, so um, I'm actually next door to you, you know, all those kind of conversations all the time. And I was fighting to establish some sort of authority in my classroom. I just like, I was having a hard time doing that. And I was, not only was I feeling like a failure going into it, I'm feeling like a failure, like I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. And I was struggling with uh, lesson plans, all of it. And I decided, okay, I'm going to give a test in all of my classes on this one day, because then I don't have to do any lesson plans for that day and the day after, like I'm good. Sounds like a great idea. It's not, because now you have to grade all the tests in every class at the same time. It's way more homework than you ever got as a student. It was awful. So I finally got through all grading all these tests, and here we are on Tuesday, and I'm in third period class, and I'm going through the tests with them. And I had always encouraged my classes, if you get to a problem, you get to a question, you don't know the answer, put something down. Even if you can't get all the way through it, start working it, do what you can. Maybe I can give you some credit for it, right? I can see some evidence of you're wrestling with the concepts, you know what you're doing, I'll give you something, I'll give you anything I can. And so I asked the question, hey, if you feel like I missed anything on your test, uh, let me know. And this kid in the back of the classroom shoots his hand up and says, yeah, I got one. I look at, the, look at the clock, we got about 10 minutes, so I give some problems for the rest of the class to work on, and he comes up and we start to go over his test. And he immediately flips to like the third page, and there's one answer that's circled, arrows, stars, it's evident, like, hey, this is the one I think you missed. And I read it, and I think, okay, here's a really great teaching moment, right? Here's a chance for me to establish some authority and not just for him, but for everybody in the class. I can kind of do this. So I say loud enough for everybody to stop what they're doing and, and tune in. I say, Jimmy, you wrote your fly is down on this piece of paper. You're not gonna get any credit for that. And as soon as they came out, I realized that wasn't his answer on the test. He was trying to discreetly tell me (laughs) that my fly was down. And did I mention that he was in the back of the class? (laughs) And so I'm standing there and my eyes are closed and I'm just hoping, please, like, I just wanted to crawl under a rock and die, right? And What broke the silence, and I was wearing a red tie that day, what broke the silence was the girl on the front row saying, Mr. Brown, your face is the same color as your tie right now. (laughs) 
Oh, it was awful. And then I realized, um, this is third period. (laughs) And I went to the bathroom before first period. So I hate to be embarrassed. How about you? I hate it, loathe it. I hate the appearance of failure. I try to avoid it with everything in me. And typically when I'm faced with embarrassment or failure, I don't handle it with grace. Um, But for some reason in this class and in this instant, the first thing that came to my mind was I just said to everybody in the class, you ever been in that room where they're doing an icebreaker and they're going around and they make you tell stuff and somebody asks, well, now you got to tell us what your most embarrassing moment is. And you can, for the life of you, you can't remember what it is. I was like, I got it. For the rest of my life, I'm good. I know exactly what to say in this moment. And everybody laughed and we, we had a good moment. And then I looked at Jimmy and I was like, you know what, Jimmy, you're my friend, right? Thank you. I don't know what everybody else is doing, but you're like looking out for me, right? Because now fourth period and on, I don't have my fly down. So, but I realized, hey, this is, um, this is the age of YouTube and this is the age of Twitter. So every teenage person in that school, they already know about this, <laughs> right? So I made the decision, uh, the executive decision that we're going to start every period for the rest of the day and then go back in the first two periods. We were going to have a moment where we could all collectively laugh at my uh, humiliation. (laughs) And uh, yeah, Uh, what I can tell you is I saw a change in my classroom immediately that the authority that I was struggling for and trying to demand and trying to command and trying to establish, I didn't have to work for it anymore. And I wish I could tell you that the tactics that I was being told, well, do this, stand up when you start the class or all that, I knew it wasn't that because I'd been trying those for a couple of weeks. But after that day, I had a different relationship with my students. And I think I wanna go into that place today because I think there's something in humiliation, there's something in failure that we don't wanna embrace, we don't wanna go into, but it can bring life and it can bring people together. And it's something I wanna talk about. So we've been talking about love, but we're gonna go into a series where we talk about what it looks like to go into the desert. And it's really mimicking and matching the journey that Jesus took whenever he went into the desert. He went into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And so in this 40 days of Lent, we're going to spend 40 days in the desert. Now, my idea of the desert has been forever changed. Because a few weeks ago, I had the privilege to go to the Holy Land with uh, actually some folks here from, uh, from the West Side. Good to see you guys. Um, thanks for coming. Um, And I don't know about you, but I've spent most of my life living in Houston, Texas or Jackson, Mississippi, which is like the opposite of arid climate, right? It is lush and green and sticky and humid. It's, it's, yeah, that's what we live in. Uh, So I I actually brought some photos to kind of help us figure out, hey, what does the desert look like over there? So this is a shot uh, from Mount Quarantana, which is actually the mountain that Jesus climbed whenever he went into the desert to be tempted. And you can see there's caves. Those look like the caves that we believe that he spent those 40 days in. Now, the one thing that you need to know is that we were told while we were there that it's been an unusually uh, rainy season. 
So all the green that you can see, imagine that it wasn't there because that's what it would actually look like. And if you ask me, I'm already thinking, yeah, that doesn't look all that green, but you can see some green and some grass in there, but it, like, it wouldn't be there in most cases because it's unusually, it's unusually green. But at one point when we were um, driving into Jerusalem, we had a tour guide. Uh, his name is Bassam. I actually have a picture of Bassam as well for you. So this is Bassam. He is a Palestinian Christian. He's uh, lived in Pal uh, Palestine and Jerusalem his whole life. Uh, and he does this for a living. He takes people on tours of the Holy Land and he knows the history, he knows the culture. And at one point when we're driving uh, from the Dead Sea up to Jerusalem and you're going up the mountain, we look over and there's uh, some people on the, on the hillside and it's shepherds and they have their sheep and their goats. And so Bassam starts to tell us a little bit about this people group and he says, these people are what, what we call Bedouins. Anybody ever heard that word before, a Bedouin? Yeah, several. So the word Bedouin comes from the arid word Badayi, which is the Arab word for desert. And what Bassam unpacked for us is if you take the etymology of the word Badayi, you break it down to its parts, it literally is translated as the place where life begins. And I thought, man, what a beautiful metaphor. But so often I think of the desert as the place where everything goes to die. But I wonder if for us, if as we go into this season, if we could begin to see it as the place where life actually begins. So I wanna talk a little bit about failure and embarrassment. And the reality is that failure and embarrassment is, is like a desert for us. And I have a feeling that it's more of a desert for some of us than others. Um, anybody here familiar with the Enneagram? Anybody? Yeah? Oh, more than, uh, than, 11, than 9 o'clock. Awesome. So uh, the Enneagram is a, is a tool, and it's an ancient tool. It was used to help people understand personality, uh, but it was also a tool to help uh, with spiritual formation and spiritual development. And so if you engage with the Enneagram, it can help you understand some places where you've been wounded, and it can also help you understand some places where you can go towards healing. And it breaks uh, down into nine different types. And one of the types is called, they're broken down by numbers, is a type three. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm a type three. Um, I'm really competitive. I love to, if you can give me a goal, I love it because then I can make a scoreboard and I can go win and I can, you know, I can go do things and we can uh, have all kinds of success. Uh, but one of the things that you need to know about a three and I want to share this from, from uh, one of the books that kind of unpacks this, is it says, in their childhood wound, threes lost themselves behind the attention they received for their performance. They didn't know from what their value derived. And so they went in search of validation by attempting to avoid any form of failure. This misguided quest upset not only their experience of being loved, but at the core, the reasons why love is offered. The malformation of selfless love makes it difficult for threes to accept unmerited or unearned expressions of affection or attention. My wife and I were having a conversation earlier this week about how I hate birthdays. Not everybody else's, I hate mine. <laughs> because it's that moment where like, hey, I haven't done anything for you. My mom had me, I showed up and everybody's here to celebrate. I don't know what to do with that, right? Like I, it makes me like, it makes my skin crawl, to be honest. Um, their quietly competitive nature is rooted in their inner drive 
to prove to themselves that they are valuable. This inner drive is perpetuated by the basic fear of the three that somehow they were hopelessly worthless and characteristically base. And I can tell you that there is something in me that wants to prove to myself and to other people that I'm worth being loved. And so what I do is I project all kinds of things out here, right? I project success. I project that I'm smart. I have two master's degrees, right? I will, bring, I will do so much for you. I project all these things. I take pictures. I post them on Instagram because I want you to think I eat really good food, right? I drive this kind of car. I live in this kind of neighborhood. I'm healthy. I'm wealthy. I'm successful. I project all these things. But in the end, it's just an attempt to prove to myself that I'm worthy of being loved. Does this sound familiar for anybody? <laughs> and what we find is if we're willing to engage with our failure and our embarrassment and our humility, it allows God to strip away all the projections and get down to what's really true and what's real. So I wanna share a few passages with you about one of the disciples whose given name was Simon. And if you know anything about Simon, Simon has some pretty epic failures throughout the scriptures in his time with Jesus. And I wanna share one of them with you. So we're gonna look at Luke chapter 22. And in this portion, what's happening is Jesus is having one of his final meals, one of his final conversations with his followers. And he's about to go to his crucifixion. And at one point he stops and he addresses Simon in particular. And he says, Simon, Simon, how Satan has pursued you that he might make you part of his harvest. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed that your faith will hold firm and that you will recover from your failure and become a source of strength for your brothers here. And Peter said, Lord, what are you talking about? I'm going all the way to the end with you, to prison, to execution. I'm prepared to do anything for you. And Jesus said, no, Peter. The truth is that before the rooster crows at dawn, you will have denied that you even know me, not just once, but three times. And you may have heard this story before. But it goes on that after Jesus was arrested, that sure enough, Peter has this opportunity to proclaim to everybody there, nope, I'm with him. I'm one of his followers. I'm one of his disciples. And instead, he goes on to deny it. And I love this idea that Jesus was so aware of what's going on that Jesus knew Peter's failure was coming. And not only is he not put off by it, but he actually prayed for Peter for what would come from it. And I wanna tell you, some of you may have some failures in your life. Maybe it's a failed marriage. Maybe you feel like your kids are just falling apart. Maybe you feel like you failed as a parent. Maybe your business collapsed. Could be all kinds of stuff. But what if Jesus has already prayed for you and that failure? What if Jesus actually sees something on the other side of it and wants to do a work in you and through you and through this failure? See, the truth of the matter is when we allow God to strip us and we get stripped of our projections and what we hold out is that it reveals our character 
and it refines it as well. It makes it stronger. It makes it more pure. If you remember back to whenever I was describing how I was feeling about the job that my best friend's dad offered me, you notice how I was looking at it? I was trying to prove to everybody else that I was successful and I couldn't see how blessed I was to have somebody who loved me so much, somebody who thought so much of me that they were willing to offer me a job I wasn't qualified for, right? One side says, I'm not enough, and the other side sees, hey, there's this gift. But you can never see it if all you look at and all you have are the projections you're throwing out. Ecclesia, let's go into the desert and let's allow those projections to be stripped away. Now, here's the truth. None of us, our first pick is to go into the desert, (laughs) right? None of us say, you know what I haven't done in a while? I haven't failed at something. You know what, sign me up. Like, give give me some of that. But the reality is that there are plenty of spaces where we can begin to look at failure differently. I remember a couple years ago, I was working for Apple And I had had a lot of success working at Apple. When I started working at Apple, it was here in Houston, I started part-time as uh, what's called a part-time specialist. And that meant that I was the person that when you'd walk in the door, I was probably at the front of the front there, I'd get to talking to you. And I would be the one to help you either purchase a Mac or get an iPhone or whatever it was that I was that person and I did it and I was good at it. And I was so good at it, I was able to teach other people how to do it. And in a time span of less than a year, I went from being a part-time specialist to being a manager of one of the stores. And when I tell you, when I go places and I talk to people in Apple, if this conversation comes up, everybody can't believe that I did that and that amount of time. Most people I talk to, it's five to seven years that it goes from part-time to manager. So when we left Houston and I went back to Mississippi and there was a store there and I needed to get a job, I thought, I'm gonna go back to what I know, I'm gonna go back to where I'm successful and I'm gonna continue this trajectory and this path. So I went back to work for Apple and about two and a half, three years in, that was not the case. All of a sudden I noticed I started having some different conversations with my boss. I started to be really pointed And it began to be really clear to me uh, that they had plans for the leadership team uh, in our store, but there was a different plan for me. And it became really clear that I was gonna have two choices to make. And on one hand, I could choose to keep the job I had, keep the title, keep all the salary package, everything. But we would begin to have some conversations and if at the end of a few months, if those conversations hadn't gotten significantly better, then I was actually probably gonna lose my job. And then on the other hand, I could take a demotion. I'd take a little bit of a pay cut. In terms of job responsibilities, it actually probably wouldn't change that much, but everybody in the store, everybody in the market, Lots of people all over the world would know I took a demotion. So I had a choice. And everything in me, I'm the kind of person that I'm wired to where I typically go this route because I believe in myself. You give me a goal, I can crush it. I can hit it. But what was going on is we had just found out that my son, who's six, 
is autistic. And it was hard at home. It was really hard. We were just trying to figure out, like, what do we do? How do we care for him? How do we care for my daughter? How do we make this work between us? And it became really apparent, while I know I've got in me what it takes to go this route and succeed, I don't have it in me to do this and take care of my family at the same time. So I made a choice to take uh, a demotion. And I was absolutely terrified to get up in front of the whole team at a big store meeting and announce, hey guys, I'm, I'm gonna take a pay cut, I'm gonna take a demotion, and I'm gonna do this and here's why. And it was as brutal as I thought it was gonna be. And it was hard. I'd love to tell you, oh, everything was great. It wasn't. But what was true is that failure and that humiliation that I felt gave me the power of my humanity back. It gave me the chance to show up and do really great work, even though everyone else was thinking, you should have quit, you should have left, you should have gone on to something else. And my relationships with the people that I cared about in those spaces, they changed. And I'm really proud of what we went on to accomplish together as a team. And I know for a fact it was a huge part of preparing me to come and step back into this space and to be with you. That I would not be anywhere near as ready to do this if I hadn't gone through that season. And it still stings, it still hurts, and it's hard to talk about. But I know that's true about our failures, is that Jesus doesn't see it as the end. And maybe some of you, you've thought that failure was the end. And maybe you've disqualified yourself from some places where you can step in and you can offer light and you can offer encouragement for people. But I want to tell you, maybe that's the very place where you can offer the most encouragement and the most life. That Jesus wants to do something else. He wants to strengthen our character in that. So I want to go to one more passage. And this is in John chapter 20. And actually, before we do that, can we, there's, I want to show you a picture. So here's, um, yeah. So here's a picture on the Sea of Galilee. Our brother Kirby Trapolino got this shot, and he's amazingly gifted, right? He got a great photo. So this is our uh, group that went to the Holy Land. We're standing with our feet in the Sea of Galilee on the shore, right next to a fishing village, which is the kind of place where they would have brought a big catch to to come sort through it and then take it into the town and sell it. This is what it would have looked like in the place where we're going to in John chapter 21. So in John chapter 21, the disciples are at the Sea of Galilee. And what you need to know is that Peter got up one morning in Jerusalem and said, I'm going to go fishing. So he traveled 96 miles by foot to go to the Sea of Galilee, somewhere close to, that looked like what you just saw. And he went fishing with his friends. And they go out fishing all night, they don't catch anything. And Jesus is on the shore and he says, throw your nets on the other side, and they catch so many fish, and then it triggers, that's, that's Jesus on the shore. So they bring the fish in, and this is where Jesus meets them. And he says to the disciples, bring some of the fish you just caught. 
And Simon Peter went back to the boat to unload the fish from the net. He pulled 153 large fish from the net. Despite the number of fish, the net held without a tear. And Jesus said, come and join me for breakfast. I love this idea that Jesus is there not to shame, but Jesus is there to have a meal and say, come on back. Join me for breakfast. Not one of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus took the bread and gave it to each of them. And then he did the same with the fish. And this was the third time the disciples had seen Jesus since his death and resurrection. And when they finished eating breakfast, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other things? And Simon Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my lambs. And Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon Peter said, yes, Lord, you must surely know that I love you. And Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. And then for the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, you need to know there's something interesting happening here in the text. So in English, we have one word for love. But in Greek, they have at least four. The first two times when Jesus throws out this question of do you love me, he's using a word that gets translated to agape. It's probably the most profound type of love. It's an unconditional kind of love. Jesus asks him that. This third time when he throws it out, he uses a different word. He uses a word that's translated to phileo. It's where uh, brotherly, like the city of brotherly love, it's more of like uh, a a friendship or a, a brotherly kind of thing. So this third time when he asks the question, it's got a little bit of a twist to it of like, hey, are, are we friends? Do you like me? Are we, are we good? And Peter was hurt because he asked him the same question a third time, do you love me? And Simon Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, look after my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you would dress yourself and go wherever you pleased. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and take you to the place you do not want to go. And what we know is that Simon goes on from this, the moment of his greatest failure, to become Peter, the rock. And what you see Jesus doing is, just like he denied three times, Jesus gives him the chance to redeem himself, to reinstate him three times, to declare, no, I love you. And what I know is true is that this moment must have shaped Peter. That it turned Simon into the rock. That it solidified and did so much in him. And what I want to invite you into is a season where it's going to be painful to go into those failures and humiliations. But to find the truth that God loves you and God wants to do something in through that. I want to share one more story with you, um, and it's actually of St. Patrick. So next week is St. Patrick's Day, and most people think of Ireland, right? They think of leprechauns and green hats and green beer and all that kind of stuff, and uh, I don't have any problems with that, but uh, I want you to know there's something way more profound. There's a reason why we celebrate St. Patrick, uh, and it's not because of green beer. Uh, But St. Patrick, anybody, just curious, anybody know where St. Patrick was actually from? No? So he was actually from England. Uh, He's not an Irishman, he's an Englishman. 
But he is, this, he is the patron saint of Ireland because when he was 16, uh, pirates came in and they captured him and a bunch of other people and they sold him into slavery and they took him to Ireland where he was a slave and he was in captivity. And it was there that he found God, that he became a follower of Jesus. And eventually he won his freedom, he escaped, he got out, he went and studied to become a priest. And when he was 46, he felt like God was calling him to go back to Ireland. And when he got there, Ireland was considered one of the most pagan places in all of the known world. And by the end of his life, it was considered one of the most Christian places in all of the known world. That's the impact he had on that place. That's why we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. That's why he's the patron saint of Ireland. But he wrote a confession, and I want to share just a piece of his confession uh, with you. And he said, it was in captivity that the Lord opened up my awareness of my lack of faith. Even though it came about late, I recognized my failings. So I turned with all my heart to the Lord my God, and he looked down on my lowliness and had mercy on my youthful ignorance. He guarded me before I knew him, and before I came to wisdom and could distinguish between good and evil, he protected me and consoled me as a father does for his son. That is why I cannot be silent, nor would it be good to do so about such great blessings and such a gift that the Lord so kindly bestowed in the land of my captivity. This is how we can repay such blessings. When our lives change and we come to know God, to praise and bear witness to his great wonders before every nation under heaven. I don't know about you, I've never been sold into slavery, but it would be hard for me to call that a gift. Um, but what I know is whatever failures, whatever humility, whatever humiliations we have, I hope we can take this season to begin to see it from a different perspective, to see it as what could come from that, what life could come from this. But we also have Jesus as an example because he went to the cross. He went to a place where when he was hanging in that place, there were people saying to him, if you are the son of God, come down. Right? He got rid of all the projections. He didn't care about what people said or thought about him, but instead chose to go into a place of failure, of humiliation, because that's the place where all of life changes. So today we come to a place where we're going to feast and celebrate and remember his death, his failure, and eventually his resurrection. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so humbled by your life, by your love, and by your presence. And today we thank you for this bread, for your body, which it represents, which was broken for us. And we thank you for this cup, this juice, and this wine, and for your blood, which it represents. 
And we ask that today as we eat and as we drink, that we would go into failure, that we would taste it, and that we would be able to see things anew, that we could see that there is life to come, that this is not the end, that this is the means to an even better end. And so God, be with us as we celebrate today. And we pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.